0: Mm-hmm. this should work does this work yes. Yes. you know often uh, usually I ask people who are new to stand up and say I'm new and I'm so and so and I live here and there but today we have such a small number of people we could everyone get up and say what their name is oh I see all kinds of people I haven't seen in the longest time that's Mary Axelrod I haven't seen you in a million years. It's always nice to see people you haven't seen in a long time. It's also good to remember the name because then it's so reassuring. (laughs) There's a piece of the memory bank that didn't fall out. Okay, everybody here is going to say their name. You You only have to stand up for five seconds. Stand up, say your name, where you live, and if it's the first time, say it's the first time. Otherwise, don't say it's the first time. But let's hear everybody's name. We'll start with this corner of the room. Yeah. I'm uh, Ted Walters. i here for a good time. I've been the fifth time. I think. I can't Oh, sorry. Uh, Ted, Santa Rosa, been here before. Okay. Ted, Santa Rosa, been here before. My name is Sinada. I live in Chicago, and this is my first time. Oh, so welcome. Yeah, yeah. Are you here on a holiday? From Chicago. Yeah. I need a break. So I took my my vacation days and I looked for a place that I could go and meditate and I found here and I love it so I planned, and I'm here today and tomorrow just to meditate and participate <laughs> That's a really yeah. that's good for you. It's yeah. <laughs> perfect. Welcome back. My name is
1: Deville. I'm from Santa Rosa. And I've been coming on Wednesdays most of this year. I am Stuart.
0: I'll be in Fairfax until the beginning of November. And I was here once a long time ago. Welcome. You want to say your name? Everybody is saying their name today. and I'm from Okay, now so should we do this way? Let's do over here. Okay. Many, many. There are a couple of us. Joe's not here today. Otherwise, but that would be about as long as you. Yeah.
1: take me home and all of such happy designs. I was here about 15 years ago My name is Mary and I'm coming I come very solo but when I can I like
0: to come because I love Sylvia. And I don't remember where we first met Mary but it's a very long time again. Probably probably college of Marin. I don't remember. College of Marin. In a yoga class that I was teaching, that I stopped teaching in 1984, I think. I mean, it's a long time ago. So. I'm glad we're both still alive. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is really wonderful, really. Hi, I'm Karen, and i come on and off. And so... okay, I'm Lisa, and I've been coming for about um, two Wednesdays, five or six years. Juanita, we missed you. No, you... oh, I missed the instructions. I'm Juanita, and I'm from She rides here on her bicycle every Wednesday... So you're supposed to just say your name and where you live, that's all. Yes, everybody. There you go. Up. Oh, it's your first time, so welcome. And somebody, everybody said their name, everybody? Somebody just came in and didn't say name. Oh, there you are. We're all saying our name today. Welcome again. Just for the week or weekend, or with your mom. I'm
1: Peter Kim. I'm from Boston. This is our second time
0: here. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy that you're all here, and I'm happy that I'm here. I've been—I think I was only away one week, right? Two, two, two. and I'm back now for four weeks. So. Uh, I'm really glad about that. I feel already better. Um, So this is a lot. I'm Sylvia. I live in Kentfield. And I've been coming to this class for about, I don't know when we started. We started as soon as there was a building over on the other side of the road. And since the property got bought in, uh, 1989, it probably took uh, a year or two to, we had a tent for a couple of years that went up for weekends, uh, events. But then we bought those um, uh, portable buildings, temporaries, and it's supposed to last, I think, ten years or something. Schools often have them. So we had them for well past their shelf life. And they really needed to be replaced, but uh, we were there for, on Wednesday mornings from the beginning. So, And it used to be that it was just me every week. And then in the last 10 years, Donald tells me, because I went very fast, he and I have been sharing the Wednesday mornings. But what I like most about the Wednesday mornings is that there's always someone here. I don't remember what happens when it's on Christmas Day. I think we may have been here anyway, but... Um, because we are here on New Year's Day. Maybe, maybe when Christmas is a Wednesday, but I, I don't know. But as, otherwise, I like the feeling that every Wednesday in Marin, we are here. And it just so happened, alas, with World News, that we were here in the morning that the federal building in Oklahoma City was terrorized. And we were here the day after 9-11 in New York. And uh, we were here on other notable days, painful to remember. And I, always, it didn't make what had happened less painful. I just was glad that we had someplace to go where there were other people who were familiar to us that we we could be with. It's not a good thing. I remember on the morning after nine eleven, which was a Wednesday morning, as I drove here, churches had their doors open with a big sign in front, we're open today, please come in and sit. And with or without any kind of particular kind of service, people went in to sit there because there's something consoling to be sitting with friends at a time that everybody knows what's on everybody else's mind. And uh, there's something about other people showing up to share the burden of that day. You don't even have to talk about it. We talked about it. I'm sure other places they talked about it too, but it's just the coming together, so you're not alone with yourself. The you know, the news. Um, well, we we'll start with the news this morning of the uh, earthquake in Mexico City, and picture how many people saw pictures of that on the TV, and uh, you know, do you remember the last? When I was here the last time, uh, we had guests, I can't remember her name, woman over here, but I don't see her here again. And I was talking about Houston, and she said, I'm upset that you're not talking about, why haven't you mentioned Bangladesh? Because they are having terrible floods. And so we talked about Bangladesh as well. Uh, I think it's, likely just given the nature of how we are as human beings that if something happens next door to us we really take notice and of course something happens on the other side of the room of the world you take notice I think we're built to take notice of, of more of what's proximal to us but really to look around and think the whole world is perishable I so what really what I want to talk about is what does that do to people if we really realized the, how vulnerable we all are. Uh, there are any number of poems, which I didn't bring because it's better to say it in our own words, any number of poems where the point of the poem is if we realized how amazing it is, wherever we are, that we're there and other people are there with hopes and dreams and lives and wishes that things go well with them and with their other people in the full knowledge that they might or they might not. And that we do that is so astounding, such a noble act, capacity of mind that we don't look around and say, "Whoa, well, look at the world, it's deteriorating. It's not worth staying alive for, or become indifferent to it. I think the opposite happens. We we get roused up to try to make it better, or to do something else. And I think it's coming together. That that's a big part of it. See, I'm not alone in my pain for the world. You feel that these days? Pain for the world. So many things. Are you watching the the floods in Puerto Rico? That there are islands that, are, how many people have ever had a holiday in the Caribbean when it was holidayable? You know, and the whole cultures and houses and people and lives. And really, it's like a wake up. What are we going to do? I think this is the end of the story. Like, at the end of two hours from now, I hope what we'll all agree on is the only thing we can do is be a little kinder. You know, that's that's what's left to the people who are around us when they're around us, and to ourselves. Uh, I remember that uh, when that it's not that phrase is not unique to me. That uh, when um, how many people recognize the name Aldous Huxley? Oh yeah, everybody does. Uh, What did he write that was so well known? Island. He wrote, Um, "Brave New World." Island. All this actually very major philosopher of the second half of the twentieth century, and uh, also uh, very interested in experimenting with uh, psychedelic drugs at the end of his life. Probably was maybe a little bit infamous for that. He, uh, uh, his friends included uh, people who lived in Southern California around uh, San Diego, who used to go down to Mexico, to Rancho La Puerta, before it became a very um, upright and mainstream uh, health resort, and do experiments with mind-altering drugs. And when he died... Uh, He died of some prolonged illness. And his then wife, Laura Huxley, was with him through the dying period and recording his um, philosophizing through the last days of his life. they, They wrote a book, you can probably find it somewhere, called This Precious Moment of his musings as he came to the end of his life. And uh, in it is the recounting of really the last thing that he ever said while he was alive. Is, uh, was, uh, people were asking him, Aldous, after all your philosophizing and studying and uh, drug experimentation and meditation practice, what do you know? What, 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 what really do you know for sure? And he said, what I'm sure about is that we could all be a little bit more kind and i remember reading that long before i heard that the dalai lama when people ask him what's your religion says my religion is kindness and i think about that's the most amazing thing that human beings i don't i think it is anyway that human beings get to do with their evolved mental processes we certainly have very highly evolved bodies and brains as we get to inhibit impulses to strike back or really instincts for revenge or getting even or getting mad and transmute them into being a little bit more kind kindness is a choice I think Compassion, I'm not sure compassion either arises or doesn't arise You don't choose to be compassionate, but you decide to be kind I think I think, but anyway, that's what I'm thinking about this morning. I was thinking about it all the way here, so we'll sit for a while and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> I realize that sometimes i I almost said, if that's all right with you. But I thought, that's that's so disingenuous. It has to be all right with you, because I haven't got anything else to say. So that it better be all right with you that we do that, because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> so, let's sit. Recently, I've been teaching more and more of the instruction... That sounds a lot like um, Ajahn Tejaniya, who's a contemporary Burmese teacher, Utejaniya, who says, uh, really it's about relaxing, just being aware of what arises, what comes up. But really mostly just noticing it. Not preferentially, not, not necessarily trying to have anything happen. Trying to be at ease with whatever is happening. So sit in a comfortable way. Just sit there. You think about it. It's such a uh, not complex not complex instruction, but it's hard to do, sit in a relaxed way because the body could be uh, at least essentially relaxed as you sit in a comfortable way and you feel a chair under you and against your back and your arms alongside of your body. If you want to, close your eyes and feel that the breath comes in and out and in and out. That's really the Um, non-volitional, automatic thing that your body and every other air-breathing body does.
1: Every once in a while it seems to me amazing. I think we get born out of our
0: mothers who are breathing for us. And as, as long as we're in the womb and they breathe and they uh, metabolize nutrients and whatever we need. And we get it automatically pumped into our bloodstream and our body. And then we come on, out ourselves, and we're cut off from the power source. And then for the rest of our lives, our bodies on automatic generator, automatic pilot. It breathes itself for the rest of its life until or unless it has some problem physically that inhibits the breathing or doesn't nourish it or can't be treated. But until the end we go to sleep and we don't remember to breathe, we just are breathed. We need to volitionally do things like walk or feed ourselves or comb our hair, but we don't need to be volitional about breathing. It just happens. Sometimes there are instructions that really focus on (coughs) noticing the breathing and letting, and really, really trying to keep the breathing in the forefront of of attention. It's a little bit um, more effortful, I think, than just noticing the breath, noticing the changes in the body as breath goes in and out. I feel breath more in the movements of my body than I do in the air that passes in and out of me, that my chest expands, that it relaxes back down, then my back pushes into the chair a little bit, and then it relaxes down. Lots of physical things that happen around the fact that breath is going in and out. And what's more, we're sitting in a space where our skin picks up the temperature of the air around. It's a little cool today, but you... It's possible for me, probably for you, to feel the coolness or the warmth on the parts of your body that don't have clothing on over them, your arms or your face.
1: And of course our ears
0: are always available to pick up stimuli. Even in a quiet room there are little sounds near and far. So I like to say the instructions is just stay easy. Alert to what's happening but not in any way trying to change it, just noticing it this is this is true, this is true, this is happening this is happening, this is happening if something happens that disturbs your mind that like you fall asleep and you start to struggle to stay awake or you have a thought about I'm so restless I have to move some disturbing state takes over your mind it's a good idea at that point really to notice the next breath in and out, and the breath after that, and the breath after that. And use the breath just to calm the mind down, settle it down. There's another breath, as another breath. And then whatever was that disturbing state is usually gone, vanishes. And then just rest. You don't really need to do anything except stay awake. So awareness remains. I'll be quiet so we can do that for 20, 25
1: minutes. It's always our um,
0: custom to mention people that we're thinking about with particular intention um, at special moments in their life. I'm certainly thinking about my grandson who uh, just left to go back to his third year at at university and I hope he's safe and well installed I'm also thinking about my friend Rachel who I visited in New York last week who um, was in the hospital for several days for some intercurrent illness that has nothing to do with her brain cancer and has now gone home that no one understood then or now? i thinking about all the people who are dealing with illness now, all the people who are dealing with floods and natural disasters, some that I know personally, some not. What are you thinking about? I'm thinking about all the helpers in the world, the medical staffs in all the hospitals and the volunteers and all the aid stations in the world and the first responders in all the situations of dread and despair in the, in the world right now all the people who are worried about people that are known to them and loved ones and missing about all caring people may they be sustained by their own compassion in heartfelt connection to all beings. May all beings be sustained by their own benevolence. I actually feel better than I did a half hour ago when we started to sit. do you I, and I realized that I feel you, you know remarkably um, and the world didn 't get any better in that half hour. Maybe it even got worse. The only thing that I count on is having changed and for the better. Is just by sitting down quietly with people that you trust. At least for me, my mind settles down. It's like all the—I'd um, like to think of some more um, less homely uh, uh, metaphor than like the the, the uh, stuff in a uh, snow globe. When a snow globe is all shook up and it's got you can't see what's in there, and then it settles down and you can see oh it's a little house in the woods with two old people sitting on a bench. Didn't see that before. Or it's the Eiffel Tower or the Golden Gate Bridge or something like that. So I see what's in my I see more of what's in my mind, and the seeing more is already um, I think its own relief. Not so much that it's better than what I thought, but somebody said yesterday, and I said, oh, I'm going to write this down. And I did write it down on a piece of paper that I didn't bring with me. So I don't know it, but it began that by saying that what we're trying to do is remove... Um, or settle down those obscurations those clouds that fill the mind and heart and prevent it from feeling its own benevolence that somehow uh, what I heard myself say in that blessing that I said at the end was my experience at that time when my mind is all stirred up I'm not only aware that of all the unhappy thoughts I have, struggling people, people in need, people in dire moments, uh, my own uh, anger about it. I was going to tell you a story about my friend tomorrow. I'll tell you about my friend tomorrow right away. But just in this moment, as I'm realizing the some of the dynamics of my own mind um, and it became clear to me how that works i was coming I was driving here this morning, and I did get up and looked at a little television net, um, and saw all those pictures of people and you know crowded into shelters who I hope will be all right but communities destroyed and was really worrying about that and uh, especially the the earthquake in Mexico. I mean, everything is bad, the floods and the earthquake in Mexico and every every once in a while they say something that's a a personal story like uh, this is a man looking for his brother who he hears in the rubble calling out to him, but they can't get the rubble moved. You know, you can't believe a thing like that. And um, anyway, I, I was got my car and I was driving here and I turned on the car radio and um, it usually puts on music. It puts on uh, the, uh, KDFC or something that's going to make my mind a little bit calm down. And I drove over this is exactly how it all happened, and I driving over Whites Hill, it doesn't have good um, doesn't have good reception. So I pushed the button and squawking away. So I pushed the button that says AM, which normally says this is KCBS and news and weather and weather uh and traffic and but instead of being seven forty coming up, seven ten came up and it was a call in Radio show of extreme right wing politics, not mine. And the three men were talking earnestly about why it's so important that this most recent uh, health bill, which is on the verge of getting voted in, should be voted in. And I thought to myself of all my friends who are role models. Tony Bernhard, who purposely listens to inflammatory radio to uh, build his muscles for listening with compassion, I honor Tony tremendous, and i don 't personally do that myself because having a hard enough time without egging it on. but all of a sudden, here are these three men earnestly talking about why specifically this bill needs to get passed because otherwise uh because of one specific component of it, which is eliminating Planned Parenthood totally for at least a year. And they're rumbling around, what if it, at the end of the year are we ever going to be able to sustain it and extend it? And I thought about it, and I I thought about it because I thought, here are people uh, purporting to be, uh, I said, all of us who are pro-life, want to have the end of prime parenthood. So that's a completely bizarre thing to say, but okay. But then it's a completely bizarre thing to be members of the same party, the president of whom, which is of that same party, who yesterday was contemplating in front of the whole world destroying an entire country. How many unborn babies would be in such a destruction... How many recently born babies would be in that destruction? How many babies of all ages would be, and besides in neighboring countries? It's such a bizarre thing. So I had too bit of, big of a reaction to that, clearly. When I came in, I was really probably, you didn't, <laughs> you could not notice I was a little despondent to begin with. But what happened, I'm not, I'm so completely thunderstruck by it. But what happened is as I was sitting, and I could actually feel my, my muscles relax a little bit. And then I thought, well, you know, I was so grieved and stunned and disheartened and frightened, I, all of which was true. But then I realized that what I also was was mad. How can they do a thing like that? you know, And mad is one of those real serious poisons that clouds up the mind so that it has no ability for the heart to show up. What I, somebody told me yesterday, um, I wish I could remember the exact words. They said, we are practicing in order to lessen those negative states that cloud the heart and mind from responding in the way that they can with compassion and kindness. You could say that half a dozen other ways that get in the way of wisdom manifesting. So I feel better. I'm still just totally blown away by that, but I think to myself a lot of things... Among the things I thought as I'm going home and I'm calling Lisa Murkowski again this afternoon, how many people, you go home now and call, you know how to do that? You write Senate telephone numbers, go home, we could have 50 more calls to Lisa Murkowski this afternoon saying do not sign on, we can do something. And also the senator from Maine. And also John McCain, That's three phone calls. It was very interesting for me to learn that, that I was incensed, but I was also mad. Mad is not good. Angry is not good. That really clouds the mind. Now I'm just incensed, but I'm not left stunned. Many years ago, when there was another very big hurricane in Florida my friend Tamara, no longer alive, uh, left a message on my answering machine. I came home one day. The a message on my answering machine that said, this is Tamara. I just want to tell you that you don't have to worry about me. I'm safe. And uh, I'll, I'll call you on Monday or whatever it was. And uh, my friend Tamara, living in Florida near the coast... At that time, also had uh, uh, had several years of chemotherapy for uh, uterine cancer, and just when we had spoken the last time, she had been just about to see her doctor again for yet the reports of the latest checkups and the latest MRIs, and I heard that, and she said, "I'm safe. You don't have to worry about me." I thought, "Oh, praise God!" Tomorrow's findings from, from her mri were great good good i don't have to worry about it and the hurricane happened and i stayed watching the hurricane the whole time as maybe a lot of you look these days because it's a really amazing thing to watch how they know where it's going anyway i watched the whole weekend on and off checking them how's the hurricane in florida and uh uh, then after the weekend and after the hurricane had passed, and, uh, I talked to Tamara, and uh, she told me, you know, I, I left when I saw how bad it was going to be. I have friends who live 15 miles in the interior, and they asked me to come and be with them, and my windows look out over the water and I was right in the path of it nothing obscures the wind from my house so I went to these friends inland in a safer house and then she told me all the conditions of the sitting she said first of all she said uh, there were a bunch of people who had taken shelter in that particular friend's house they must have called everybody they knew my brother-in-law sheltered with somebody over the weekend she said, uh, the eye of the hurricane came through in the middle of the night, and she said, we were all of us, people who didn't know each other, in the living room of that house, huddled together in our pajamas. She said, look, it looked like a slumber party for adults. All of us in our pajamas huddled together in the middle. And she said it was very eerie, because all of a sudden it got very quiet, and then we're sitting there, sitting there, knowing that the the eye of the hurricane is right over us and that it's going to soon start again. So we all sat quietly together and then it started again. She said, um, there was nothing for us to do. That what did I say to her? I said, sa- at one point I said, uh, I said, you know what, Tomorrow, when I got you a message on the phone message and it said you don't have to worry about me, uh, I th- and I knew you were ha- seeing your doctor. I thought, oh, great, you know, you don't have cancer anymore. She said, no, no, I still have cancer. It just in the middle of the hurricane, the cancer was not what was happening. The hurricane was happening, and I was all together with these other people, and we were praying for the people around us. All the electricity was out. You couldn't see your nearest neighbor. There was no way of knowing how anybody was doing in the neighborhood or anybody, anything. We didn't have any news about anything. But we prayed for all the people around us, and it was okay. And I still have cancer. So one of the things I was thinking about, because it came up a bunch of times in the last couple of days, when uh, I watched the news coverage of this storm or that earthquake, and uh, the news commentators will often say, "I'm praying for you," or "I'm praying for this community," or "I'm praying." And I think to myself, "I wonder how many of these people think or feel that somehow their prayers are being are mitigating the situation." And I thought to myself, "You know, I don't think that that's a question. I don't think that tomorrow thought that." praying for our neighbors would magically in some way make the neighbors better I think it's a way that we all have of saying I really really want this to be that way you know I I, I don't I don't have any kind of theological problem with saying pray Uh, it's not I don't have a theology that involves divine intervention but very few people that I do know and many, many of my closest friends are clergy. But they actually don't think that there's divine intervention. They think that uh, there's a potential uh, divinity in human beings. They, uh, they like the teaching of the divine abodes of compassion and uh, kindness and uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity that the mind can feel divinely um, at ease uh, and that that's what really we hope for not that there's a, an actual place there's a place in our hearts that's divinely at ease because it's filled with really the benevolence of an unclouded heart I thought about tomorrow I said, no no I still have cancer but at the time it just wasn't what was happening and that And when you think about it, it even in the middle of anything you can be there for what's happening and the other things are just stories hypothetical stories so the other thing that I wanted to talk about today along with keeping really a clarity about what's going on with one's own mind because we're seeing it through the film of that all the time by the way, I think purposely the news is coming, is being presented every day with some new outrage, uh, purposely to keep the mind all inflamed, so you couldn't see clearly and say, "I don't want to do this." That's that's not actually even. Every time I say something like that, I think, "Well, I'm not supposed to have a political choice uh, in a pulpit. You're not supposed to say this candidate is good and this one is not good." But you can certainly say things about what I really favor is uh kindness and compassion and legislation and legislation that makes things good for people. I was uh I've been making a series of podcasts when they're available, I'll let you know. Uh they're uh uh, I don't want to write another book. I've I said everything I wanted to say, more or less. And uh, a book is a long adventure from the minute that you think about it until the time that it actually gets born. And uh, I think that it's true uh, that you get to be a certain age. My friends are saying, at my age, I don't buy green bananas. I cry. I, I buy green bananas. <laughs> But I don't write books. <laughs> they take too long. So <laughs> you didn't forget how to laugh. <laughs> but not writing books, but somebody um, uh, invited me and I decided, okay, I'll do it. And they said, let's do podcasts, They're little on the moment things. And it's like your blog, we could just put them out. Because our question for the podcast, I said, well, what will I talk about? And she said, well, whatever you want. But I I, said, I have to have like, some topic that's ongoing. Um, so she said, well, what do you know now that you didn't know 40 years ago? That's a, that's a good topic. Uh, what, uh, what good did all this meditating and thinking about what the Buddha taught and teaching about it, what good did it do you? What do you know now that you didn't used to know? And that turned out to be a very useful project like, what would you say? I mean, all right, Phyllis, I'm going to, like, that because you're one of the people who said I've been here from the beginning. Not a, well, you think you got wiser over the last 40 years, 20 years? The first thing that came into my mind is that life is far more complex uh, than I ever imagined 40 years ago. Life is far more complex than we ever imagined 40 years ago. I remember when I started to go to Buddhist retreats, and my teachers, who were also 40 years younger, said, we're practicing in order to be able to deal with old age, sickness, and death. Old age, sickness, and death sounded to me like something that happened to people way <laughs> far away from me now. And lo and behold, I turned around three times and I'm there. You know, that, don't you feel that at whatever age you are, that you got there very fast? You know, are you surprised? I'm already, what, how old are you? Forty. Forty. You got there very fast, didn't you? Yeah, you remember the twenties or flash. flash? That's it, uh, and that's really amazing, isn't it? If someone showed us photos, we'd say, "Yeah, yeah, that's me," and that's me also, and that's me also. But it it look, it you know, it has a resemblance to me. I can see where I who who it was. I don't look the same on the outside. But I don't feel the same. I don't think the same that I used to. You probably don't either. But you don't see that happening to you. And we didn't see it was as complex. <laughs> I can't even tell you what I'm laughing about because it's a political statement that I've vowed not to make. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <Huh? laughs> <laughs> not no, I can't be bribed That's <laughs> um, what else do you now know that you didn't used to know, even if you weren 't here a million times? There you go yeah, there you go. Sorry, no. the things that you say and do to people can affect them forever, forever. Forever, I mean, I think you have to live 30 or 40 years and then revisit that person and I'm like, oh my God, really? That long ago? And and the, the damage just goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember there are two words that come out of Theravada uh, uh, canon. The two words, ahiri and otapa, and they mean everything that you do makes an effect. Every single thing that you say or do, or even don't do. My friends, I, <laughs> this is a political statement, but not a bad one. My friends who didn't vote in the last election because they said, well, it would just be the lesser of two evils, I think now probably feel really bad about it. And they, they, it wasn't that they did something, they didn't do something that they could have voted, and it would have been different probably for generations and generations and forever. And things that people said to you. Who remembers some criticism of you that someone made when you were less than 10 years old that you haven't forgotten? Yeah. Whatever it is, like don't sing mouth the words you can't carry a tune or something or other that people said. Whatever, that's not even hard. A terrible one, but... But everything matters. So that one of them, I don't remember which is Hirti and which is Otapa, but whatever you do has repercussions, and um, whatever you do has an effect, and uh, the effects are endless. That's, that's what they mean. It has to do, one of them is, is um, uh, uh, translated as moral dread. Like every, I should really think about anything that I do because it's going to have all these infinite sequelae and I think about that and I remember at one point in my practice thinking to myself that's a terrible realization because I can't do anything I have to think before I say anything but uh, I think you don't have to leave a staccato life and not do anything because it might I think you have to I think for myself, what I'm counting on is if my intention is kind, that it'll pretty well take care of itself if I'm about to say something. I was about to say a piece of gossip, not niceness, and I didn't do it. So I feel, ah, good. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of a, oh, you know, get away with a little thing. No, really, I think you can't. It would be a bad example on my part. So thank you very much. What else do you know that you absolutely didn't know? Juanita. Well, that some things that I did 40 years ago that I didn't quite feel good about at the time, that I'm still carrying it with me. That's right. That's the same. Not only it has effects out there, but has effects here forever and ever. And, you know, the, uh, the psychology of how it works that the mind forgives itself is really amazing to me I heard this story we're not finished yet but I'm going to tell you this story now uh, I was talking with my friend uh, my friend uh, Cliff Sarin, who frequently comes and sometimes teaches with me my friend Cliff Sarin, who does uh, mindfulness research and uh, he was telling about having just gotten back from my uh, a conference in Botswana Um, where a lot of the conference people came from South Africa, and the topic generally, with all the speakers being um, local to South Africa, Botswana, researchers and um, teachers, they're talking about the uh, experience of um, truth and reconciliation, of the healing that needs to be done Generations and generations after apartheid in South Africa, and uh, one of the one of the speakers was telling a story uh, was describing her research in South Africa with mothers who had lost their sons in fighting in the, those times and uh, mothers who've lost their sons in fighting and that the healing has to do with ways in which they are brought together with the mothers of the perpetrators and sometimes I, I haven't heard so much about that's the part that I had not heard I hear, You know, we've all probably heard about people who went to prisons to visit the perpetrator of the crime and end up Befriending them and understanding them and getting to know them well, and ultimately even pleading on their behalf for clemency or for lessening of their, of their um, uh, sentence. sentence. In this case, uh, women were meeting with the mothers of the perpetrators, and the the, the word that I'm, I can't remember actually the the word in that language, for the feeling that the mother of the uh, victim, the mother of the person who died, said, when I met that other mother, I felt a pain right here. That the, a recognition that the pain of my loss, of my offspring, of the fruit of my womb, was the the pain that this woman was echoing to me. That she felt about what her offspring out of her womb had done to mine that in somehow one feels the effect it, uh, of being both killed and of being the terrible feeling you would have of being the killer of somebody if you 're the mother of the killer of some other mother 's son, you feel the other mother 's pain and her emptiness. And it's a joint feeling in that. And it's a better word than compassion, you know, because you say compassion, it uh, sounds like, you know, what it sounds on a greeting card or something. But my womb is in pain because yours is. I get you. It's a really very touching description of feeling that, so feeling the other person's pain that you feel it immediately in your own body. You know what I've thought about? That sometimes when you see a movie and um, you see some terrible um, physical act of violence, maybe particularly in a vulnerable part of the body, your own body winces. Isn't that, isn't that true? You feel it you know, in whatever, especially if it's a very vulnerable part of your own body, or whatever. But to be able to really, really feel other people's pain So what I was thinking is, this came a far way from Juanita, but I was thinking about, I think that when we forgive ourselves, it's it's, it's on a scale. I mean, whatever we did is probably not, you know, nowhere near having been responsible for somebody's death. You know, there was an article in last week's New Yorker about what if... You accidentally kill somebody, and it was a, did you read that article in the new yorker so i'm I'm trying to remember the end of it, so you read that that a, a woman said I was driving on a dark country road or somewhere I didn't see driving along, and a child ran out, and all I felt was a thud, and I stopped the car and I'd kill a child who had run out what yeah imagine. So, the, I mean, you he can't, he can't stand it. You know, it's impossible. And she talked about that she couldn't stand it. She was young. She was in graduate school. Years and years and years. And you do remember the end of the story? She finally moves to a whole different part of the country, starts life again, goes back to graduate school, becomes a psychologist. Do you remember the end of it? I don't remember the end either. But maybe because the whole thing we put it out of our mind. When you hear a story like that, can you imagine? Maybe one of you has that experience, I don't know. But how do we feel it enough? So I think to myself, you know, I'm I'm really astounded by how can people say I'm in favor of life And I'm also in favor of war. It doesn't... So what else do you know now that you didn't know 40 years ago?
1: 40 years ago, I... Let me say that differently. In the past 40 years, I've really begun to... um, have a much greater acceptance of myself.
0: Were you going to say something? Oh, <laughs> all right. Do you want to say more about that, or you just want to say that? Yes. That. In a nutshell, that's a nice journey over the last forty. I think so. Who who would say that about themselves? More accepting of themselves. I am. I mean, I can't imagine if I did such and such how long it would take me to get to be. But I think I could always feel quite confident that um, if I did such a thing like that, it wouldn't be out of anger. I, you know, it would be. The thing about culpability, I, maybe we're all culpable if I vote for someone who makes a war and goes and kills other people. Uh, I'm not the only, I'm a part of it. I am not the cause of it, but I'm a part of
1: it. Anyway, yeah, there you go, Larry. Um, Yeah, that money doesn't grow on trees.
0: (laughs) Did you want to elaborate on that?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I worked in the uh, financial industry, and for years they told me about uh, investing in my 401k, and I just did it haphazardly, but it really makes a difference. All right, yeah. The second thing was um, that race relations just doesn't you don't heal it overnight. That is just a continual everyday process. You want to say something else about
0: that, or where, where did you grow up? Uh, Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. I don't know what it was like to grow up in in
1: Dayton, Ohio. When I was was coming up, um, 95% of the blacks lived on one one side of town. It was a city of about 350,000 people. So even though it was a northern, a midwestern city, it was very segregated. Not so much now, but did you go to school
0: in a of a diverse community, or when you were going to grade school?
1: When I was in um, yeah, when I was in grade school, uh, the school was black. When I was in high school, it was fifty-fifty. Until I graduated, then it was ninety-five percent or ninety-nine percent black. But I went to an all-white university. Wow. One of the best universities. I still. Go there for my for my reunions they, because they took good care of me. What was it? At Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Does it
0: look different in Bowling Green now? Is, is the university more diverse than it
1: was when you went? It's probably less diverse now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I think the period that I was there it was during the Vietnam War. And Uh, We went from having 129 black students to 2,000 black students by the time I graduated. Uh huh. And uh, I went back for my 40th reunion, and there's about 150 black students. (laughs) So they kind of slid backwards.
0: Do you suppose that was because of GI Bill of Rights, that people were in the Army and then they could afford?
1: No, I think it was because of uh, the Civil Rights Movement and the... the, uh, Vietnam War Movement, they combined and the students came together and demanded uh, more scholarships for inner-city kids. So they had a lot of programs to help uh, inner-city kids who really, some were coming to college and they had a third-grade reading level. But they got the help that they needed.
0: Uh, uh. You know, I I don't know what else to say. That... um, well, maybe this, you have something else to say because maybe you know, this
1: is... You mentioned about uh, the reconciliation and I think that that's part of the biggest problem that we have in this country as far as race is concerned is because there's never been an attempt at reconciliation. Mm-hmm. We just that old wounds fester. When mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I thought about um, the past election, we talked about Hillary Clinton and... Uh, we think that she played the race card, but actually she played the diversity card and President Trump played the race card. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I'm glad you told I mean, we've been coming here for a long time and I don't know a lot about you, so now I know that about you. Thank you for well, thank that, you. Chair. Thank you. One of the things that I brought to read, talking about what we know and what we don't know, I didn't know if I'd get to read it, but it's it's connected to what you were saying because it has to do about when are we going to how are we going to learn to be different? Um, uh, Because it's a bigger topic. I want to read you this thing, but then I want to read. I've been reading a book called Fantasyland. Uh, did I tell you about that That's the last time I was here? I'm amazed by it. This is Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson, who's a PBS host for a long time. He's a very good writer. He's a very good researcher. And he's written a book that uh, about, how to, how to even say, 500-year history of the United States, really... Uh, ta, ta, ta. This is an eye-opening history filled with brilliant insights, the saga of how we were always susceptible to fantasy, from the Puritan fanatics to the talk radio and internet wackos who mix show business, hucksterism, and conspiracy theories. Even the parts that you think you already know are put in into an eye-opening context. Um, it's a history lesson. And it ha- and I don't know why I'm so surprised. Talks about how the what we think of as history is what history we've been taught, and it's actually mostly a, a piece of the story, but not the story. Like uh, it says that uh, uh, the first uh, colonies started to be established in the 1600s, Jamestown and uh, Plymouth Rock, and they were. Uh, primarily the idea of a certain uh, merchant, uh, uh, affluent merchant businessman in England, who, this is like making it shorter, when uh, all those various explorers that you learned about, Columbus in 1492, and this other one came, and this other one came, and this other one came, was also the period that Europe... Was cutting up Africa and saying, okay, this is my domain, this is your domain, this is somebody else's domain, this is Belgium's domain. So here was this guy whose name was something like Huygens, H U Y K I N S, something like that, who said, you know, there's this big continent just sitting there. It's like a lot of good real estate, and no one grabbed it yet. So let's get it. So he got some of his richer friends signed on. He was a, um, what do you call it, venture capitalist. He got money together. He said, let's go there and stake out big pieces and say, okay, this is ours. We now own this colony. And then we'll send lots of boats full of the people we want to get rid of, the people in the almshouses, the people in jails, the people, the homeless, the people that don't have a worthwhile living all of what we consider to be the parts of the society we don't like, we'll put them on the boats they're not black at this point they are people who, are, well, some of them were, but I suppose, but they were ordinary people in and around London, there's the people in London we don't want and we'll put them on boats and we'll send them and we'll say you get a new life you can go, you're an indentured servant and even though you had indentured servants which is a form of slavery in Britain at that time they did three years or five years these indentured servants had nine years that they had to serve on such penurious wages that they could at the end of nine years didn't have anything and couldn't get out of them anyway anyway it was a big real estate adventure venture and that the pilgrims came because they were a split off group from Protestantism Martin Luther had come before them he 'd split off from the uh, Roman Church <coughs> made a whole Protestant church, but here they had some people who began to interpret Protestantism differently and they said, "We have the real true religion and went off to the new world and uh, they actually founded um, they went to uh, they went to New England mostly, but the Jamestown was mostly a business venture for Early um, real estate barons, when you think about real estate barons and how they figure in current politics, uh, what do they call them? Uh, There's a different word in oligarchs, people who have so much money that they really control the society and the land and the this and the that. So they've got that, and then these Puritans, they they came, and uh, then the pilgrims came, and then when we went to grade school, it was a story about how people came wanting religious freedom, uh, and you see these righteous, good people who dressed plainly and, and were well, living really the holy life. They were terrible bigots. They thought everybody else was terrible. They kept to themselves. And all those stories about what they had Thanksgiving meals with... <laughs> With uh, Native Americans are not true they 're completely made up stories. they thought that the Native Americans, as long as they could be servile, well, we could use them because they, you know they know the ways around you, but if they 're not we 'll kill them because you know it 's not their land, we came and uh, The Puritans and the uh, pilgrims were different groups with different beliefs. Then, and they had people with really outrageous beliefs, but for the well, from outrageous from a point of view of uh, their way was the right way. It's my way or the highway, he said. everybody had to go. Anne Hutchinson, who's often celebrated as a first woman who took a stand on something, was really uh, a very unkind person who started her own really. Not Good Sect, I I wish I remembered all the stuff about it, but I'm reading it with my eyes hanging open, and it's like reading a mystery novel, because every day, every page is filled with stuff that you didn't know. And, okay, so that's amazing stuff. But what's even more amazing is that the stuff that I had heard in school and which we all know is going to be Thanksgiving soon you'll see all these pilgrims with Native Americans all cooking away together and you know having a pumpkin pie or something <laughs> didn't begin to be true and that but we, it's like surprising because we thought it was true and the idea that people could tell you something okay so now from this, this is called the statue we need apropos of uh, Charlottesville. If you look closely at Brown versus Board of Education, the landmark 1954 school desegregation decision, you'll see that Brown wasn't a single case. It was five cases consolidated into one. Briggs versus Elliott, the first of them, took place in my home state, South Carolina. Briggs came about after the Reverend Joseph Delane organized a group of black parents in Clarendon County to petition for equal educational facilities. The man who stood fast against the request was Elliot of Briggs and Elliot. He was the chairman of the school board, Roderick Miles Elliot. He was also known in my family as Uncle Roddy. Although I grew up in South Carolina in the 1960s and 70s, I didn't learn about Briggs versus Elliot until I was an adult. My father, Uncle Roddy's nephew often talked about how shamefully black people were treated in Clarendon County, but he was deeply uncomfortable with the part our family had played. Like most southerners, he was skilled at avoiding unpleasant conversations. And in the case of Briggs, events conspired to help him. For reasons that remain murky, the Supreme Court case came to be called Brown rather than Briggs, even though Briggs preceded Brown, even though both alphabetically and temporally. So it was Brown versus the Board of Education that was memorialized in history. Textbooks and our family name was spared association in the public mind with a racist cause. I won't pretend I'm not grateful because the fact that Brown has overshadowed Briggs also meant that Mr. Delane, the man who did more than anyone else to bring about school desegregation in South Carolina, has been too often forgotten. This month, with the blessing of his surviving children, we'll list of them, um, Joseph D. Delane Jr. and uh, my cousin Joe Elliott, Uncle Roddy's grandson, submitted a letter to the South Carolina legislature on behalf of the 21 descendants and relatives of Roderick Miles Elliott, including me, asking the legislature to honor Mr. Delane with a statue on the grounds of the State House in Columbia, South Carolina. In a just world, the name of Joseph Delane would already be familiar to South Carolinians. Mr. Delane was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and a teacher in the Clarendon County Public Schools where his wife, Maddie, also taught. Black schools in Clarendon County in the 1940s were in abysmal condition, dilapidated, poorly heated, woefully understaffed, children had to walk miles to attend school because the school bus, led by Uncle Roddy, refused to provide a bus. It provided 30 buses for white children. Mr. Delane began organizing Parents of Clarendon County in 1947 and kept at it for the next seven years when the Supreme Court finally vindicated his cause... In 1954, it used the dissenting opinion in Briggs as the legal backbone for its decision. In South Carolina, however, Mr. Delane's courage and tenacity were punished. Both he and his wife lost their teaching jobs when an arsonist set fire to the Delane home, which stood 60 feet outside the city limits of Summerton, South Carolina, all the all-white firefighting squad in Summerton stood by and watched it burn to the ground. Later, Mr. Delane's church in Lake City was burned to the ground as well. He was eventually forced to leave the state in 1955 after defending his home against a group of armed attackers. Mr. Delane died in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1974. A lot more in this, but your hair stands on end, doesn't it? Because that's not four hundred years ago. That's in our lifetime. I remember Brown versus the Board of Education. Again, like it just happened. Takes a lot, to you know. But in... and and uh when the the uh, Charlottesville happened, there were people who said, "Well, why should we take down these statues i mean you know we we 're finished with segregation now, and these people were part of our history, but they 're part of a very bad history you pu- you put up You put up statues for people that you revere, you know." You don't put up statues of people who did terrible things, like burn down your house, and people who were part of fire fire departments that didn't come out. What a thing in our in our country, in our lifetime, most of us. Anybody here wasn't alive in 1954? We were all alive at that. Ah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that's right. My first son was born in 1956 and he's 60 years old. So
1: This is what I know that I didn't know 40 years
0: ago. I know I don't know anything new. Like I knew that things were born and they died. And I knew that if you really, uh, that really, really not being able to relax about having things your way, being held in the thrall of an addiction or a terrible grudge or whatever was painful. And I knew in a way that things happened because other things happened. Funny, I just was looking in my mind what would come up for an example of that. Um, after the after 1945, the people in my father's family who escaped being rounded up and killed by the Gestapo by hiding in woods for a couple of years came to the United States, where they could not get an entry visa, and just passed through New York on their way to Canada with it. Canadian government did give them an entry visa. They stayed with us in, in uh, New York, in Brooklyn, for a couple of days to get their bearings, and then they went on. And uh, one of them gave me a ring uh, that was a small girl's gold ring. And it fit my finger. I was nine years old, and I was glad to have it. And years later, I realized that that ring must have been a ring off a child that didn't survive. Child, I don't know whether she was taken away and died in the camps or died hiding out in the woods with these people. But all of a sudden I realized that that ring had a history. And it came to me because of these people, and I didn't know the pieces of it earlier. And uh, years later, I lost it. And I wanted it a lot, you know, I, I discovered that for all the reasons that I said, you know, I knew that if you want something that you can't have, it really grabs you. I really wanted it and I didn't have it. And then by and by I got over that want, because I can't have it back, it's gone. But I know all those things more. I, you know, I, I got them when I heard my teacher say, okay, I get that, and I understand that. And the third of them, well, things happened because other things happened. I knew I had that ring because somebody else hadn't survived. That's why I had the ring. So there was a way that, that connectedness moved me. And those three things that I thought about at the time when my teacher said the main reason for practicing is that you really understand impermanence and suffering and uh, connectedness, interconnectedness. Things happen because other things happen. And I thought to myself, who doesn't understand that? Everybody understands that, you know? Things happen, you know, all of a sudden you have an eighth birthday and then all of a sudden you're about to be nine, okay? Things happen. And things, your best friend moves away and you really feel bad because you don't want that to happen, but it happens. Well, your grandmother dies, and that's really bad. But you understand it, kind of. And things happen because of other things. Well, but I think you get to understand them more. And particularly about, in a way, they all have to do with that things are keeping changing and our whole lives are accommodating to change. And maybe... well for instance, I think that the here's my uh my proof text, if I were debating that it when the Buddha was dying and um he was about to die, he preached his last sermon, and uh, the next to last line of the sermon was um transient are all constructed things. Actually, it's look at lots of different translations, but what it means is that anything that comes into being doesn't stay. And that means actually a person, a a, a, a person, a this, a that, even um, even a not-live thing. Do you know the poem Ozymandias? Do you remember that? Did you learn it in school? It just came in my mind again. I think it's by Shelley. And it's about a man who comes in a desert and he finds the ruins of a uh, of a the ruins of a, a city, the ruins of a culture, and the ruins of a of a big statue. And but the it's got all it's got is a pedestal, and the whole person that's on the pedestal is gone. And the end of it is I saw and I saw this scene. And I saw the inscription, and it said, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. I see now you remember Ozymandias. And the whole point of it is that there's nothing left. It's gone. Even a city is gone. When you read about archaeologists just discovering a city under three other cities, all of them were filled of people and dreams and people and dreams and people of dreams and loving and hating and it's all going and how to keep in mind that we are part of the coming and going of all that and the Buddha said transient are all constructed things everything that comes to be doesn't last the last line has various translations but the one I like the best is move into the future with confidence because how do you move into the future with confidence if you know any minute it's not there uh, my friend in New York, who it was in the hospital was in the hospital for probably after all, they decided for something that had nothing to do with a glioblastoma, which is an usually fatal brain tumor. Mr. McCain has the same brain tumor has a short survival length. And she took terribly ill all of a sudden and after five days she just got better. And they think that she got a flu in between. She went to the hospital and got better and was going home. You don't know. While you're on the way to someplace else, you could have the flu. While uh, you're talking to your neighbor, your child runs out in the traffic and gets hit by somebody whose whole life was changed by that. You know, if you look in Buddhism, so who doesn't know that is what I was thinking to myself. We know it over and over and over again, but we don't really get it, I think. The the Buddhist story that goes with that, which you've surely heard if you've been around Buddhists for a while, is the monk who's walking along serenely and suddenly a tiger jumps out and runs after him and he runs to the edge of a cliff and he can't run anymore because it's a cliff but the tiger is charging behind him and he leaps over it and grabs a branch and it's hanging on the branch. It's one of my favorite stories to see in temples, in in, in particularly in Korean temples, where they have big wall murals in bright colors and that's one of the favorite stories to tell. So somebody hanging there with a, you can visualize it, a uh, tiger leaning over the edge and growling. And down below, all this roiling river that they're about to fall into. He's about to fall into. And there's a, a mouse that comes out of the um, crack in the cliff. And he's hanging on this vine. And the mouse starts chewing the vine. And uh, there's a strawberry growing out of the cliff off a little twig. And he takes a strawberry and he eats it and he says, this is a terrific strawberry. Or tasty, or whatever a monk would say. Very tasty strawberry. And the point of that story, in case you didn't get it, (laughs) is we are all that monk. We're all hanging between the the edge of the cliff and the bottom. And we're always hanging there when we leave home and go out on the highway. Every time you see somebody downed with a motorcycle, they say, there's a downed motorcycle, and you think, ah. Oh. Nobody goes out on the highway thinking, I'm going to get killed on this highway. And certainly not the motorcycle people who are sure they're not. It could happen to them. It could happen to a person in the car. It could happen... Somebody... Uh, 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 from time to time brings up the fact that there was some PSA plane years ago that landed in Southern California that crashed landed in the neighborhood. And somebody, it's a ludicrous story, was sitting in their house reading the newspaper. I mean, you could stay home and get hit by a falling-down plane. You could be one week in the very best of health, as my friend was in Costa Rica, teaching mindfulness, and the next week you could have a headache, and the next week you could be diagnosed with glioblastoma. You don't know it. It could happen to any of us. And if we were, if it did, I mean, the chances are very small. The chances on any given day of you coming home are good. Otherwise, we would nobody go out. You know, but but once we go out, but it only takes one chance of the other thing you only have to be in one place remember when they had the uh, earthquake 89 in uh, the recent earthquake and a car, uh, when the, the Bay Bridge broke suddenly one car flew over into the water but you could have been in the car before it or the car after it you don't know. We could, you know if we thought about it and think well who doesn't know this we really don't, any of us know it because we'd be paralyzed the other thing we'd be is kinder I think really that all of us take this huge chance of buying into life and saying I'm going to do it I'm just going to have this life I'm going to behave like there's going to be a tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow go in. there's an adage from uh, Boston about weather if you don't like the weather, stick around. It'll change. Yeah. <laughs> Everything will change. That's it. But if we knew it, if we knew how vulnerable we really are, all of us, then it's a miracle to stay alive. All of us. All of us have not yet killed, we've been killed by a passing car. Neither have any of us had glioblastoma so far. Or anything else that happens to people that's... When you think about it, you think, whoa. And it makes your heart, at least mine, more available to have compassion for everybody else. We're all taking this tremendous leap of faith in going out and planting gardens and having babies and doing all the other things that all require a leap of faith. It's noon. Well, I my mood is better. How's yours? Better? Good. You know, I'm, I'm dreadfully unhappy about the, the, the plight of so many people, which may or may not be due to uh, the fossil fuel and the heating of the planet, but there's a good chance that it was. I could be mad at anybody who stood in the way of preventative measures. But being mad just... Crowd- it's so clear this morning that being mad clouds my mind. Is not good for me. So I'll try not to. No, I can't try not to get mad. I can try to notice it sooner and do something about it. That's what I can do. So let's all try to do that. And I'm going to be here for... Uh, Three more weeks in a row. So be sure to come. Also, in two weeks, Kate Munger is going to come with the Threshold Choir on October 4th. Bring a friend. The Threshold Choir are women, mostly from around here, who go and sing at the bedside of dying people. And first of all, Kate... Is wonderful speaking about the kind of work that they do. They'll speak about it. They'll, they'll sing. But since we're talking about that, uh, this, well, we're always talking about it because it's what the Buddha taught. Everything that arises passes away. S- move in your life with confidence. It doesn't say anyway, but it really implies anyway. It's all vulnerable, but Try. And Kate's going to come with singers, and uh, they'll talk about their work, and not next week, the week after, but as (laughs) another way of addressing. And when you're the better side of people who are dying, they're not going to get better It's singing because in the middle of that experience, we can be there for it. I've been visiting people in hospice when someone comes in with a guitar and says, what do you feel like hearing? I think to myself, ah, why are you here with this guitar at this point? What do they feel like? They're busy dying, they don't want to hear. But they do. You know? Why not? Okay. Maybe we all go forth from here inspired.